This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by a fan of a team that, in my lifetime, I am twenty-seven years old. I don't recall any memorable season. Uh, I'm not old enough for the Doug Williams years or the Fran Tarkenton years. I'm old enough for the Jason Campbell years. I'm old enough for Colt McCoy getting inserted every now and then. I'm old enough for Mark Brunel. Um, I'm sure I'm missing even more opportunities. Oh, Gus Farratt. Who could forget Gus Farratt and uh, those legendary Redskins teams? But no, I'm sorry. I'm starting this off super negatively because he's very nice to come on this podcast and talk about a team that I'm sure he already thinks about and complains about it and just drive him nuts on a daily basis. It's Ken Marangolo of hogshaven.com. Ken, good evening. How are you? Fantastic. And yourself, Chase? Uh, I'm not a Redskins fan, so I I think that's somewhat better right well i mean thankfully i watched with my very own eyes three super bowl wins four total super bowls okay uh, i so I'm, I'm just a tick over 40 years old so i was uh still pretty young when the redskins beat miami uh in uh um with with riggins and fourth and one and all that stuff um we got trounced by the Raiders. I do remember that. That was a, I was a, that was a terrible day. Uh, remember the Doug Williams uh, game against the Denver Broncos extremely well. And I was in high school when Mark Rippon uh, led what was arguably one of the greatest offenses in the history of the NFL and, and it is ranked as such when you see such rankings um, against uh, the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and, and I just want to say Super Bowl 22. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I always get get my I wasn't there for it. So I've I've I got some great memories. Um, there is we call we call you Chase. We call people your age here in DC. We call them the loss generation. Oh, okay. um, and we have there's a name for it. Um, there's there's a, a whole generation of Redskins fans that have never seen them hoist a Lombardi Trophy and have seldom seen them perform well enough um, to get you know overly excited about it. It's happened here and there, uh, but certainly nothing uh, on the national stage. 
like uh, when I was a kid. And it was just brutal because they had Robert Griffin. Like that was the thing. I just remember being so excited and just like, oh, they gave up all this stuff. And it turned out it wasn't even like they gave up all that much because I'm the majority of those Rams picks that Les Snead made uh, did not pan out to say the least. And you do that for quarterbacks. Like uh, the Eagles did that for Carson Wentz, everybody else. But like it, it just didn't work out. And then there was the weird stuff with Shanahan and everything else. And that's all gone. And they kept Jim Hazlitt around for like 25 years, which I never really understood. But it's uh, it's fine. Um, I want to start here because Washington, one of my favorite things about this team this year was that uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with this stat is that every time they were basically with Alex Smith, when they got a lead, you knew they were winning a, winning the game. Like they were undefeated um, almost, was it like week 10 or 11? They were undefeated when they were up <laughs> at any point in the game and they had lost every single game um, that they fell behind in. So it's a very Alex Smithian stat, but um, I want to start there. Did this team finish about where they should be or was this team, if Alex Smith does not go down and just and that awful injury, um, are they playing in Los Angeles this past weekend? Well, it's not just Alex Smith. I mean, I think from a Vegas perspective, ahead of the season, the seven wins was pretty much the market. Yeah. Um, so if you, the national gambling, because gambling, you know, Chase is a thing now, right? And I mean, we can actually, it's a, it's a barometer of, I always would refer to it in the past because I believe in it. Um, but Vegas and the good fellas uh, who make the, the, the lines, um, they know what they're doing for the most part. The money moves. There's a, it, an interesting, and I'll, I'll circle back to your question, but the cool thing about as far as the national perception of the Redskins, because I feel like that was part of your question, is this where they were, should have finished. Um, the national perception of the Redskins has always been so crappy um, for obvious reasons. When, when they've been on primetime, they've stunk, and they've stunk bad. Um, the storylines that have surrounded Dan Snyder um, and his tenure have been bad. Uh, and they've permeated through all the nooks and crannies of, of the NFL's, you know, um, national fandom. So what, what the interesting thing from a gambling perspective is that by and large, the Redskins have done well against the spread and they've done well um, for gamblers because of that, because the, so much money lines up against the Redskins um, because of what the average person thinks of them, that uh, the gambling community has actually come around on the Redskins because they've, it's actually been up until now a pretty good bet because so many people are willing to bet against him. Um, I, so I think that the seven wins is probably about where the market was for them. And Alex Smith getting hurt crushed them. But you have to remember, the Darius Geis injury yes. cannot be overstated. Um, he was He's a transcendent talent. Uh, certainly, um, you don't put resources into a running back. The, we, we haven't uh, here in Washington, and, and a lot of teams um, kind of stopped only a handful of running backs uh, um, have really been drafted high, and he kind of fell to us in the second round. And the second, a second round draft pick is, is is a is a valuable resource for a running back in this day and age, uh, especially for the Redskins. He's fast, he's violent, he can catch. He showed you a, just a flash of it in the preseason before he got hurt. Uh, he would have made the offense look different. Him and Alex Smith, I think, uh, would have been a healthy Alex Smith and a healthy Darius Geis were probably worth another win and a half, another two wins. And I think if that's yeah. true, um, you're at least talking about a team that's um, contending for the NFC at the end. Yeah. And I mean, it it just happened so early on that we forgot all about it and they kind of reinvented themselves 
which I think they deserve credit for with Adrian Peterson is that that was a, just a different team. They were not planning to start the season that way. They they were planning on utilizing a very forward-thinking style in that they were going to have Alex Smith in the shotgun do a bunch of cool RPOs because they had Chris Thompson and Darius Geis. They had these two weapons that if they put them on the field together, it's a terrifying thing where you could see some Chiefs-like stuff, like obviously not as crazy with Patrick Mahomes, but like with the personnel they have around him, you could tell that if the offensive line stayed healthy, which they got decimated by injuries, they just got decimated by injuries everywhere, which um, cannot also be understated. It's not just Darius guys. This team just got destroyed all across the offensive line. I remember in the Falcons game, you were down to what, like four total available guys, and you were going to have to eventually get, um, I don't even remember who it was who was going to have to play. Was it a tight Matt, end? I know. It was a defensive tackle. Right. going to have to come in and play off okay. the line. I think uh, second straight season, 20 starters uh, on IR. The total for injured reserve for the Redskins this year, I believe, was 24. Does that fall on Jake Gruden, second... or is it just an unlucky kind of situation there? I think I don't. I don't. I don't hang it on Jake Gruden. I know people do around the here. I ask is because Michael uh, Lombardi in his uh, NFL piece last week mentioned this: is that like he has to do something about his offseason program, and that's the reason or his reason as to why this team is getting decimated by injuries year after year. And I, I don't know if that's true or fair. Um, I, I just thought it was interesting that um, I, I just think it's weird to put that on the head coach. Like I just feel like sometimes I. I I would subscribe more to the belief that it's just the front office picking players who are more injury prone than others. That might be more of it than whatever the coaching staff's doing. Cause I, I just, I feel like a lot of guys are just born with that kind of issue and some aren't like there's just some guys who can take a lot of hits and that just for whatever reason, they're fine year after year. And then others are kind of made of glass and um, sorry to bring up Robert Griffin the third again, but uh, he's someone who comes to mind there. But uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. And it's got to be super frustrating if you're Washington. And that was like my biggest thing about this team is that like the seven win mark seemed right because they have too much talent to be bad. And I've always thought that. And I think if you look up and down that coaching staff and everything else, you're like this team, especially in a weak NFC East this year, like there's just no reason this team cannot win it, especially with a quarterback like Alex Smith, who one of my favorite things to talk about on this podcast, <laughs> shout out to PFF Austin Gale, is that dude just wins regular season games. If you look up the last couple of years, it's what this guy does. He just wins games he's supposed to and loses games that he's supposed to. And in a winnable NFC East, like I had them winning the division before the year. Cause I just, I wasn't a big believer in Philly doing back-to-back stuff. I wasn't a Cowboys guy. And obviously the Giants just um, still a lot of work to do. So I was like, the Redskins just make a lot of sense to me. And then injuries happen and Darius Geis goes down and um, I will never quit Josh Dotson and Vernon Davis is just a unicorn who refuses to fall apart. And uh, Jordan Reed will never be what we want him to be. And um, Jameson Crowder got hurt and you go up and down the list and you're like, God, if they could just have all these guys, if you could just, the Redskins were like Madden where you could just turn injuries off. This is a 10 win team. I feel like, and that's something that we have to talk about when you're, looking at this roster and this team and where they can go. I don't think they have the upside of the Rams or uh, the Saints, obviously, but I do think that they have the upside of the Cowboys, the Panthers, the Falcons, uh, the Bears, the Vikings. They're in that category where um, until they get the offensive firepower or the necessary quarterback who will push them there, um, I don't think they'll be in that class, but I think they're a solid A minus B plus when they're completely healthy. And I don't, I don't think that's an outlandish take. It's not. They, 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 the problem is um, for the uh, – so as far as the injury stuff, I mean, I, I'm not going to hang it on, on Jay, but I, I, I think from an organizational standpoint, Bruce Allen's just a 
dumpster fire, uh, you know, of, of, of a team president. And I think he needs to go, but we can, and we can get to that, but 10 wins. The, the, the thing that the Redskins have had going when they were moderately healthy is uh, a fairly stout defensive line. You know, they, they started out the season being good against the run um, to what you, to your point, they, they, their style was time of possession, uh, ground and pound and trust way, the punter, uh, you know, here's a guy who didn't have a single touchback all year. Um, all he did was make the other team start from inside the 20 every single time uh, and gave our defense a chance to um, get stops. And they did uh, early on. And I think they, you know, they, they had injuries as well uh, on the defensive side. The thing that sucks a little bit for my anti Bruce Allen, anti Dan Snyder is, is you come back next season, you still have a lot of young talent on defense. You still have um, an offensive line that'll, that'll start the season healthy with a, um, a running back in Darius Geist that's presumably going to be spending the offseason training with Adrian Peterson. So that sounds awesome. Um, you have uh, Jay Gruden coming back as head coach, which is this is by far the most stability on the sideline we've ever had under Dan Snyder. And Doug Williams in the front office and his, his guys, maybe they make some right picks on offense, which, which is where we need something. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it is a 10-win team uh, or a 10-win possible team. And the thing about it is if you get that team into the playoffs, no, they don't have the upside of Patrick Mahomes' offense or, or Sean McFay's offense. But in the playoffs, you, you, it's not that you don't need that. In the playoffs, you can – you can you can roll with your defense in a, in a ground game and try to make the other team make a mistake. Um, you just need you to know, play at good home, teams. basically. Like if you're a home team, like the Cowboys no, no, are a totally still, different oh, team way, on the road versus at home, where it's like if they play the Rams at home, they could win that game and play the way they want to play with Zeke and everything else. But um, like yeah, if Washington went twelve and four and murdered everybody in the regular season and got to host um, everybody in the NFC, uh, you could see a path, kind of like what you're talking about, where the ground and pound, the defense first stuff. We have, we have no home field advantage, Chase. No. It's the re- most ridiculous situation. They're, they're, our stadium is, is terrible. Um, well, it's the Redskins are winning. But you can't overlook the fact that home teams are just, especially over the last five years, are destroying everybody. Like, we are now another Final Four of number one, number two, number one, number two. Like, that's just, there is something to just having home field advantage. Like, the Pats have had home field, of, like, they've had to buy, what, like, eight or nine times in their t- nine, nine Super Bowl runs? Like, there's just value in hosting playoff games like there's just something there where there's been studies where it's like those guys home teams generally speaking get better calls and that's part of it but um yeah it's just playing at home if you're an nfl fan you want number one seed or you're just like the whole stuff of like oh can nick Foles do it again it's like no nick Foles the first time they were the number one seed you get to play at home the whole time like that's that that matters and him just asking him to go a backup to go on the road and run the table again it's just it's not realistic so um, I don't were know. Way better on the road. Chase. Yeah, they were. They were better on the road. I, if you're asking me, so are the Chargers, I, I and they just got beat by like 45 points. <laughs> That's fine. I, if I'm a, as a Redskins fan, I want my team on the road. Interesting. Trust me. I, you're trying to buck the trend. Yeah. You're like, no, we don't need it. Nope. Okay. We we for what I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but I want my I want my boys sleeping in at a hotel somewhere else. And waking up and not having to go to land over. When we get the new stadium in D.C., Chase, maybe something coming? changes. Maybe a different feeling happens. In the next six, seven years, I think the FedEx field's out in 2027. We're going to get an announcement. We're going to start 
seen some some ground uh you know digging uh you know some kind of groundbreaking it's, it's going to happen in the next one or two years we'll get an announcement and a plan when they put the team back in the city which i think that that's what's going to happen hmm. then I'll be willing to entertain the idea that the Redskins can enjoy some true home field advantage. Um, but that, I, Hey, listen, I've been going to FedEx for 20 years. I've been, I've been there. Are they even when the as Redskins bad as people terrible. talk about them? I, I feel like I remember seeing pictures of them being super tight. Is that true? What's that? Say it again. Uh, the seats being like super tight, like they're very small seats and they kind of squish everybody in. Is that, is that what the biggest complaint is? Uh, for, oh, Oh, I've been around too. I, I we, I've been around to a lot of stadiums. I don't think that's that's an issue. The problem with Redskins is, what, you know, what Dan Snyder's done over the years. Even when they were terrible when he first came, uh, and we were eight and eight and seven and nine, and Schottenheimer had a um, kind of a you know average year. Their stadium was packed. And he only got like get, one uh, year, right? Didn't he get fired after one? Well, he quit. Or quit. He, yeah. he was only here for God. Because because Dan Snyder wouldn't. Stay away from Vinny Serrato. Oh my God! And Schottenheimer said, "Mirror him," and Snyder chose Vinny Serrato. Wow. Um, uh. but, but what's happened is the season ticket holders have not renewed. The place has shrunk. It started out at ninety-three thousand seats. He's taken out at least ten thousand, eleven thousand, you know, twelve thousand seats. Um, he what happened in the in an intermediate period, like five, six, seven years ago, he sold huge blocks of tickets, five thousand and ten thousand seat blocks to ticket brokers. And it started this whole trend of, um, of of Washington becoming kind of like some of these other cities, a destination experience. Um, people were flying in to watch their team play. We're, we're seeing that play out in a lot of cities, not just Washington. FedEx is is absolutely um, going through that right now. I was, you know, I've been at, like I said, I've been going for 20 years. The last two or three years, the Redskins fans have not been a uh, majority. You know, maybe 50 percent, 60 percent on a on a great day. Um, of the fans in the, in the stands, Snyder's just ruined it. Man, well, maybe he'll sell. You never know. Maybe I, he'll sell. Like James Dolan is doling out uh, hope every now and then that he might sell, and he knows the price that he's going to pay. So you saw that ESPN piece. Maybe Dan Snyder finally gets finally gets sick of it. You never know. Um, and then Bruce Allen can become um, the permanent vice president, whatever his title is, for the next fifty years. Oh, no. just for you. Oh God, Chase. That would be my nightmare. It had to suck for you to see like the John Gruden stuff open up where it was like, oh, he can reunite with the other Gruden. He can go to Oakland. That would make so yeah. much sense. He, This is it. And you see the reports a little bit like popping up on Pro Football Focus or Pro Football Talk, excuse me, and being like, oh, Bruce Allen might go back and join uh, John. And then he hires Mike Mayock. And then you're like, oh, God, we're stuck with this guy. Like this is, he's not going we anywhere. Yeah, it's yeah, and not only is he not going anywhere, motion. Hmm. I mean, how could you not after his uh, recent? Um, I mean, hey, he's drafting a lot of Alabama defensive linemen that are working now. That's nice, I guess. Darius Geis, good for him. There's a little bit. I still love Josh Dotson. That's fine. Um, I don't know. What it could be worse? Most- what do you love most about Josh Dotson? Uh, I love that he is still like a huge playmaker type. I still just see it. You, I remember the highlights at TCU and everything where you're like, this dude has great. This guy should be today's NFL like that down. He should be like T.Y. Hilton. He should be somebody like that where 
he just you're terrified of anyone throwing at him you're terrified of going 25 yards downfield and seeing um what he can do because he has good hands he, he's had some good catches in the back of the end zone that you've seen and um i don't know it's just there are some little things where i'm just like if that could do could ever stay healthy and put it all together i still believe that he was worth the first round pick and is someone who could be a really good player in this league I well, he's to got another year him. yeah I won't do it. He's not Laquan we, Treadwell or something. I think there's still time. He's got a rookie contract still. So he's not costing us a ton of money. He's got another year to prove that he can play ball. Um, but he is not. I mean, he is. He's. I mean, he hasn't. He's been hurt, but he that's main his, his main problem. He just can't ball. stay healthy. He's like made of glass. He's another one. Um, I'm going to throw three quarterback names at you, and I want you to rank them in yep. terms of most likely, in your opinion, to be Washington quarterbacks. You ready? Nick Foles, Teddy Bridgewater, Ryan Tannehill, because I think one of these three will be the starting quarterback week one in Washington this fall. No Blake Bortles? No. Blake Bortles is... No. No. There's no way they're that bad. This is not that much. Like, this franchise gave up a lot for Alex Smith for stability and because he's actually a good quarterback, just not a great one. Blake Bortles is not a good quarterback. He's a really, really shitty quarterback, and they're not going to do that. There's no way. I, I do not like you have to fire everybody in the Blake building Bortles. on the spot if Blake Bortles is brought in as your temporary Alex Smith replacement. That is just that. Oh God, I'm, this is going to get me heated for Washington fans. No, your your lifetime, not not as a Redskins fan, but your lifetime, the Washington Redskins have built themselves around Blake Bortles. The list is unbelievable. Like Rex I mean, Grossman? Blake Bortles. It, yeah, like Rex Grossman. I mean, there's there's like 15 of them. You're, I mean, you're talking Tony Banks territory, Jeff George. Uh, I mean, I, we can go through all the way down the list, the Patrick Ramseys of the world, the Todd Collins, the John Freezes, and Kent Grahams. And, Todd I mean, Collins. forget I about it. forgot about him. Oh, my God. Blake Bortles fit in so well, but uh, let's not go there. Let's, let me, let no. me answer your question. Yeah. So, Hill Foles and Bridgewater, I'd, I, I'd most – prefer Bridgewater over that's those what I three. Would prefer. I think it's a huge win if they get yeah. Bridgewater. I think that's like the perfect option for them. That's what I hope. I don't think I, that's who it's going to be, but I would hope it's Bridgewater. I don't think, I, I think you're missing the one thing that I don't think we can afford any of those three. Honestly. Um, I don't know. Bridgewater is the no. most affordable of the three, right? It's not like he like blew the doors off the Panthers in that final game. Like Kyle Moore out or whatever his name is, Kyle Allen outplayed him in week 17. Like it wasn't like Bridgewater blew the doors off everything. Like he's, I don't think he's going to command a long-term deal or anything like that. I would expect another one-year prove-it deal for him. Even on one year. What are, I mean, even the guy, a guy like him is still getting somewhere between 18 and $20 million. I think so. Sam Bradford got a two-year, like, $40 million deal guaranteed. Shit, he might. I, mean, I don't know. They can make it happen. They're going to do something. They cannot go into next year with um, Colt McCoy as their Colt starter McCoy. in week one. There's no way. But and the problem, the problem case is, is Alex Smith, we owe him $51 million still. Oh, guaranteed. God. No matter what happens, he gets $51 million. Uh, to be fair, they're gonna, you would need to pay me $51 million to be the Washington Redskins quarterback in guarantees. There you go. I mean, doing business with McCoy, I want to say he's on the books for like three, three million dollars next year. That, you know, he's he's a godsend. He, he can out. He, that's a contract he can actually outplay. Oh God, I I'm going to guess Nick Foles. I, that's who I think it's going to be. I think Nick Foles. But if we're not affording him, he's going to get twenty plus million dollars. I know, and it's going to be Nick Foles. I need you to brace yourself that Nick Foles is your week one starter. 
if I was the Redskins, that's it, what I would do. Is I would sign. Actually, I would sign Teddy Bridgewater, and then I would draft a quarterback in the first round. They need to take multiple shots because what they did down the stretch last year with Colt McCoy and um, Josh Johnson was indefensible with the amount of talent they had, and they were going for an NFC East title still. Like that shit cannot happen again. And I'm all about quarterbacks and. We know Washington is not scared of uh, taking two quarterbacks um, instead of just rolling with one at a time. Like, I would do that. I would just keep throwing shit at the wall if I'm Washington because I don't think Alex Smith is the long-term answer. I don't think Colt is. I don't think Teddy Bridgewater would be. Just get as many guys in the room. I, I think that's a positive. Like, look at Jacoby Brissett and Andrew Luck, and you see what Nick Foles has done with Nate Sudfeld and Carson Wentz. I think there is something to just having multiple guys you can count on. Like, obviously, there is a pecking order, but... I uh, I would draft one in the first round, and I'd also sign Teddy Bridgewater if I'm Bruce Allen, legendary executive of the we Washington Redskins. We had Kevin Hogan, uh, the youngster out of Stanford, and he was uh, he would have been our third. He would have been our third quarterback. They decided to be super smart and not carry three. And Kevin Hogan's played in the league. He was snapped up quickly by Denver off of our, um, you know, when we made that decision. And God, I mean, Kevin Hogan would have been uh, an upgrade for us over what we saw at the end of the season. And Josh Johnson, he, he, he gave us a lot. I'm I'm proud of what he was able to do. Um, But if Kevin Hogan had been here all year long and stepped into the spot, you know, with two or three weeks to go in the season, I'm pretty confident it it would have been a different result. Um, Kevin Hogan. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Dude, did you see our team at the end? I'm I, talking like I'm not talking like Aaron Rodgers. Kevin Hogan, or, you know. Yes. Oh, absolutely. No. Oh, wait, uh, versus Kevin Hogan versus a 32 year old Josh Johnson who's played for 13 teams. Well, in the how about just calling Kaepernick? I would have called Kaepernick. Yeah. I would have. I would have brought him in. Yeah. Absolutely, I would have. I would have called Tebow. I would have called a lot of people. Do you know what I done? Brought back RG three. Leave the memories alone. He was <laughs> doing nothing in Baltimore. Just why not? Unavailable. I, yeah. Not available. But you see, another team doing that, where they just load the QB room. I think that's what you do. Uh, that's what their off-season goal should be. Well, we're going to load it up. We're talking dollar store now, Chase. Mm. We have like $25 million in total cap space. Now, they'll clear a little bit more, but they still got to get at a wide receiver. They still probably are looking for uh, a tight end. They're going to pay some for second and third round draft picks. They got to find a safety. They got to pay a safety. Uh, they don't come cheap. We're probably... Um, uh, adding a quarterback that's not going to be in that eighteen to twenty million dollar range. So we're going to let guys have to make because some... all of them are leaving because they're tired of the circus. Shout out to Bill Callahan and right. Tom Sula. Yep, man, Tom Sula would be a gigantic blow. I'm not sure Bill Callahan would be, um, but Tom Sula, man, especially with Jonathan Allen, how much they've invested in um, just draft capital in that defensive line. Oof, that would that'd be brutal. Well, he's gone. Oh, is that official? I mean, I know his contract was up, but I mean, he could still return. I thought he could still come back because Callahan's still under contract. I thought Tom Sula could still come back because he doesn't have another job yet. Uh, the word, we don't know anything, but the word, the team's being very tight-lipped, um, but the word I keep hearing is that these guys are just, you know, working for Bruce Allen is, is not, uh, it, it's not very uh, gratifying. So it's not a Jay it's, not very, thing. It's, a, it's a Bruce Allen thing. Correct. Hmm. Interesting. Damn. Bruce Allen was voted as the least trustworthy NFL executive 
last year by a poll of players and agents and, um, and league folks. He was the number one least trustworthy NFL decision maker in this poll. And not only was he not fired, not only was he not removed from dealing with other teams, he was promoted. And Sally Jenkins for the Washington Post, who I believe when she reports stuff, she's been around forever, 20, 20 years. Um, she's quoting league, you know, the league office folks as, as them calling Bruce Allen a joke. I mean, hmm. this is, this is, this is our team. Oh God. I tried not to end this podcast in this kind of note, man. So sour. I, uh. but, but you don't have to Dallas and Philadelphia lost this weekend. I take a lot of pleasure in that. I, a ton of pleasure, maybe more than I should. Um, but it was a happy, it was happy time for Ken uh, over the weekend. Okay. Uh, give me a off season to do list. Give me a three part. You gave me the names. Is like what is uh, what are you looking for to make this a successful off season? Uh, I've got to have a uh, starting safety. Okay, not DJ Swearinger. It won't be DJ Swearinger. Mm-hmm. No, uh, and <laughs> is I don't Josh know. Josh Norman back. A, uh, I would trade Josh Norman. Okay, he's got he's got two years left on his contract uh, for about eleven and a half, twelve million dollars each year. He's a good player. He had a good year. He was not our. He was not our problem. He is not the reason we're bad. I just. Uh, I always say this: if you're going to be the guy who wants to um, suggest trade, you have to be willing to trade something of value to get something of value. And I think Josh Norman has value. I think he's going to start on, on plenty of teams in this league. I don't expect it's prohibitive. I think the Redskins can get something back for him. We have some young corners. I uh, would say we would draft another corner in the in the first three rounds. Uh, and. Get something, you know, maybe maybe a wide receiver. Um, I don't know. Shoot, I don't know. Are probably... we sure they just don't need to be healthy at the wide receiver spot? Other than, like, I would probably go quarterback, offensive lineman, corner if I was Washington in the first three rounds. See, I'm not sold on quarterback in the first three rounds, only because I want to hear. I want to hear, you know, definitively that Alex Smith was never playing football again, mm. because that those words haven't been said. Um, he is trying to come back. We do owe him fifty-one million dollars. If he can play, I would like to see him try to play next season. It solves a lot of problems for us, not the least of which is having a professional at quarterback. Not the least of which is not causing us to accelerate. Fifty-one million dollars of debt, you know, salary cap up up until twenty nineteen, um, and it allows us to go one more year without drafting a quarterback. Because in my first three rounds, I'm going offensive lineman, uh, defensive back, whether it be safety or cornerback, and wide receiver. Okay, all right, that's fair. This has been great. I really appreciate it, Ken. Um, we'll have to do this again soon under better circumstances when Bruce Allen is gone or when you sign Teddy Bridgewater or when Josh Dotson becomes the all-pro that I've always believed him capable of being. There's all kinds of options here. Um, but either way, I really do appreciate you taking the time. And we can read you at hogshaven.com, the best Washington Redskins blog on the internet. Ken, this has been great. I really do appreciate it, sir. Hey, Chase, also, if you, if you wouldn't mind if I could plug uh, First Amendment Sports. Yes, you can. Uh, we, we, are, we cover all D.C. sports. I was going to say, if you ever want to talk Nats, Caps, Wizards, the, uh, Maryland Terrapins, or if you even want to talk about the greatest high school sports conference in the entire country, 
where we cover it and I'm not, we, we could save that conversation for another time. You could say, what are you talking about? That's impossible. It's not impossible. It's an amazing, an amazing sports town. If you can get past these, the, the, the latest Redskins stories, um, you know, we're watching the Harper sweepstakes. Uh, we're watching our caps go through a little bit of a Stanley cup hangover in the, in the middle of the season. Uh, wizards are pretty much, uh, sucking out loud. No, Tomasz is back in the starting lineup. He's averaging almost a triple double again. You know, My dude is back. The Wizards are making the playoffs, and I need you to prepare yourself because that's happening. I've been saying it loud, Chase, and no one will believe me. They are absolutely making the playoffs. People are out of their mind if they don't think that team's making the playoffs. Bradley Beal and Tomas Sanaransky have a natural chemistry, and they're bringing out a porter off the bench and everything. Once they get. Oh, God, yeah. No, the Wizards are making the playoffs. I'm not even worried about it. But we can talk about all that. Just hit me up, man. Yep, awesome. And I love your Sadoransky love. It's, yeah. it's long needed. This is a very pro Sadoransky podcast. Um, and I was very upset when Ty Lawson was in the rotation in the playoffs last year over him. It was baffling and just fucking absurd. But anyway, we can talk about all that another time. Ken, I really do appreciate it. And yep. we will talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Chase. We're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am now joined by the best name in baseball writing, Wick Terrell. Wick, good evening. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. What a name. I just, Wick A, like, I'm sure just with John Wick coming out in the last couple of years, that's come back in style. And just when people hear your first name, they're like, there's no way that's your actual first name. Uh, that's quite true. Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a movie I'm, I'm quite a big fan of. I appreciate that it came out. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, um, it's, it's been pretty unique since, uh, since day one. I've actually got the same name as my dad. So technically I'm Daniel, but I get to go by my, my, my middle name. So, uh, that, that makes it a little bit easier to discern who, uh, who between my dad and I we're talking about. So. Perfect. Well, I don't even go by either of my legal names, so it all works out. I know where you're coming from and just getting your own name. Um, so that works, but Wick, there is a lot we have to talk about tonight because the Cincinnati Reds who are a team that have won 60-something games for, I believe, let me check my notes, yes, 29 years straight. And it's just been annoying because you're just like, ah, oh, this rebuild's going and it's just going. They made some front office shuffling a couple of years ago. Um, it's just those years of them winning 90 a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2014 or something was the last time they did that, um, just feels like a lot longer and that this rebuild's been going, but then you have some exciting young guys. You have Scooter Jeanette getting some MVP love last season. You have Homer Bailey no longer be on the roster, which is nice. Like, there's just, there's, I mean, Matt Harvey was good for them in the second half. That was weird. Uh, so maybe pitchers aren't just doomed once they go to Cincinnati. But I just think it's interesting right now that we're seeing so many um, Reds news and rumors and then being active on the hot stove because it's been very, very cool this offseason. But uh, now we have Kluber stuff, Dallas Keuchel stuff. Like, are you at all surprised that that the Cincinnati Reds are popping up all over the place this winter? I, I'm not, honestly. It has been a long, what, four or five year slog now where uh, I, I guess technically speaking, during that five year window, they were very much connected in some big name rumors. They were just all selling rumors. It was getting rid of Jay Bruce and Johnny Cueto and Mike Leake and Matt Latos and uh, you, you name it. You're up and down the roster. And it was a bunch of big name players. 
yeah, Brian, Bryson Arroyo as well. <laughs> um, there was a bunch of guys that were getting rid of. And so it's finally nice for them to be connected again to a lot of these big name rumors, but also to have them be, you know, connected with coming back to Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, they've made a couple big name acquisitions so far, obviously getting Yasiel Puig and Alex Wood and, and, and Matt Camp and shedding Homer Barry has been great. Picking up Tanner Rourke's been great as well. Um, but they've got a lot of guys that are still kind of just only on one-year deals. And so uh, they've certainly made a lot of moves to where 2019 looks like it's going to be a lot more promising, uh, significantly more promising than the last few years have been. Um, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly what their long-term goal is with all this because there's a lot of guys that were all in their last year of team control or last year under contract. And uh, while 2019 looks like it's going to be significantly better, uh, here we are you know, in, in January and in nine months from now, uh, they might just be right back in the same spot they were uh, uh, just a few months ago if they don't go out and get more players that are controlled longer. So uh, I, I think they've started a great process. I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Uh, but I do still think there's a lot of unfinished business still left out there for them to do. Where is Scooter Jeanette going? That's a really good question. You know, I, I think with the presence of Nixon Zell around is you know, pretty much consensus top eight, top 10 prospect overall, uh, who's naturally a third baseman, but has played a lot at second base. And I think we'll be plenty fine there long-term, uh, you know, with, with Scooter, I, I think the writing's kind of on the wall that they want Sinzel to be a part of their infield. Uh, Jose Peraza is obviously still just in his first arbitration year. Aiden Suarez signed a big uh, contract extension. Joey Votto's not going anywhere, obviously. So uh, Sinzel's natural position is second base. Uh, if you kind of look to where the future is going, but uh, with the second big mar- second base market as deep as it is right now, guys like Brian Dozier and Josh Harrison and uh, DJ LeMayhew all settling for short term contracts because there's so many second basemen out there. Uh, I don't think the Reds have found uh, enough of a taker for Scooter to want to get rid of him at this point in time. So uh, I think how he plays this year is going to you know go a long way, obviously, towards deciding whether or not the Reds want to keep him around. Uh, but he is a Cincinnati kid. They got him for basically nothing off of waivers from the Brewers. Uh, I think they're going to kind of ride having him around as long as they possibly can before they're forced to make a decision. Hmm. Can he play first base? Because if he can, they could do the Ian Desmond thing and push him to Colorado, and Colorado can test him out on that front. Because they good- can't get any worse production at first than what they've gotten in the last year. That's certainly true. And, of course, they picked up Daniel Murphy also, another another second baseman right. by trade that uh, uh, was on the market this year as well. I mean, the, the second base market, I think, had it been a lot more shallow this particular uh, winter, there would have probably been a lot more rumors connected to Scooter because he's had a phenomenal two-year run. But uh, there's so much about what he's had over those two years that just makes you question how much longer he can maintain it. Uh, and I think the idea of cashing in on him would probably be the wisest decision uh, just yeah. from kind of an impartial fan take. But, uh, yeah, I'm I'm as intrigued as you are about what they're going to do with him because he's obviously played well enough to warrant uh, being a valuable asset on the trade market out there if they want to do that. But also there's a lot of reasons why you might want to keep him around. He was incredible last year. Like, he just, like, obviously the NL and AL MVP race was a little different, um, I would say. And that <laughs> um, the top seven, I think, in the AL MVP voting were all better than the best NL MVP choice. Uh, which is not good, um, I don't think, as a whole. But uh, that's also why, like, Scooter, Yelich, and Freddie Freeman does not exactly match up to Aaron Judge, Mookie Betts, Jose Ramirez, and just you go up and down the list, you're like, oh, okay, this there's a talent disparity um, in these two leagues. And obviously, Alex Bregman, um, don't get mad at me, Astros fans. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, I... So where do you think he ends up? Because I just like you, I feel like that this is he's like the perfect guy to sell high on just because of the kind of year that he had. And you're like, okay, well, where can you send him? And like you said, there's just so much 
depth at the second base spot right now that no one really jumps out at you. Um, and you kind of want to do right by him um, if you are going to move him. Like the Yankees made sense to me before LeMahieu and Tulowitzki, where it was like that, that Sonny Gray for Scooter Jeanette rumor. That made a lot of sense in the surface where you're like, I love the idea of the Reds just becoming the rehabilitation factory for New York pitchers who lost it in New York and then found <laughs> uh, their saving grace in Cincinnati um, away from the spotlight. Like that's, that's a great American ballpark story, if, uh, as you say so myself. But um, I don't know. Like that opportunity is obviously gone now, probably with Tulo and LeMahieu in the fold and Didi coming back whenever he does from that injury. And uh I don't, I just, no one makes sense to me when you're going up and down the roster of like, well, it, you know what else doesn't help, Wick? What's a that? A third of the league tanking. So <laughs> that, that a third also, league does yeah. not want to win games. <laughs> so why would they trade for Scooter Jeanette when they don't want to win baseball games? You know, it's really, I, that's, it, that hurts. It, it, it does. And it's really unfortunate. And it's actually, it mirrors a lot. Uh, obviously the way they came to the Reds is very, very different, but it mirrors a lot what happened last year when last year, meeting 2017, uh, when the Reds had Zach Cozart, who was a, a great short, yeah. shortstop who came up as a glove first shortstop. Uh, and then in the middle of a 2017 season where he was, you know, hitting OPS and then the nine hundreds, uh, setting career high marks and slugging percentage and home runs and everything else, uh, and still playing his typical great defense, uh, they couldn't find a taker for him. They, they, they just couldn't find a shortstop needy team out there anywhere because every good team had their shortstop in place. Uh, he'd never really played second or third base, despite the fact that uh, he eventually signed with the Angels to play second and third base. Uh, nobody wanted him to do that in that particular moment. And despite the fact he was you know, an all-star and having a career season, the Reds couldn't find anywhere to send him. Uh, the Seattle Mariners were the only team that had any sort of connection to him, and even they balked at the eventual asking price. And the Reds ended up having to let him go in free agency because there was just nothing else they could do. Uh, the Scooter's net scenario kind of mimics that only for a little bit of a different reason in terms of like the buyer's market here. Uh, whereas there were, you know, nobody needed shortstops and the Cozart couldn't get moved in 2017. Everybody has options at second base now. And it seems like the idea of overpaying to get Scooter Jeanette, uh, when you've got the options like LeMahieu and Daniel Murphy and Brian Dozier on the market as well, uh, teams just haven't been willing to do that. And, and it's going to be really interesting to see uh, where the Reds uh, go with him going forward uh, and whether or not he becomes one of those more intriguing bats that might be available at the trade deadline this year should the Reds, uh, despite their improvements, still not be in wild card contention. Yeah, and part of the reason I was going to save this, but because you brought up the wild card contention stuff, um, the Reds are kind of screwed, and I feel bad <laughs> because the NL Central is just, um, what's the word? Oh, stacked at the moment, and uh, I don't really see an avenue for them to creep up and pass the Brewers or the Cubs, and then you have the Cardinals making big splashes by getting Paul Goldschmidt, you look at even the Pirates who haven't done a full teardown. Like, the Pirates just traded for Chris Archer at the deadline last year. Like, they're still, like, in pseudo-contention, which is what they've been in basically since they started contending again under this new administration uh, with Hurdle and Hutchinson, and I just... It's just going to be difficult. I mean, obviously, things always change, and teams just come out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, how did this happen? Kind of like what the Rockies did last year, where I don't think any of us thought that they were going to be a playoff team, and they snuck in there, and the Mariners came out of nowhere, and that that kind of stuff happens from time to time, but I just feel like they have a really tough road. I would feel a little bit better about them if they were in, like, the AL Central. Like, if they were in the AL Central, not the NL Central, would we be talking about this team depending on what they do? And this kind of ties into the Indian stuff of like, are we sure that we didn't start like buying a lot of red stock just because like where they're going, where they're headed, 
Um, they can win the AL Central for the next couple of years if the couple things hit home, these prospects hit the way they should, and they spend a little bit more on their pitching. That, oh, you know what? They might have a team here that can compete and contend um, for the AL Central for the next couple of years. But no, they're in the NL Central. Um, but at the same time, they're going after Corey Kluber and guys like that, Dallas Keuchel, depending on the years. Like, um, do you think that's something that's going to cloud a lot of people's perception of what this Reds team is just because they're kind of blocked in a very difficult NL Central when um, they're probably going to end up being a better team in their wins show this year? You know, I, I certainly do. It, it kind of, for me, the, uh, entering into this upcoming season, it's kind of got like almost a Toronto Blue Jays vibe to it, which is even mm-hmm. though the, the Blue Jays have been good and had really good players off and on for the last you know, decade, more or less, uh, guys like Jose Batista and Edwin Encarnacion and whatever, they had to work so incredibly hard just to make one playoff appearance. Uh, because they've got the Red Sox, they've got the Yankees, they've got the perennial Rays doing whatever they do uh, to maintain being competitive at a very low payroll. Uh, the Reds are up against it, and that's part of the reason why I'm so intrigued that they've gone out and gotten so many rental players, uh, like the you know Puig Camp, uh, Rourke, Scooter Jeanette, uh, David Hernandez, even in the bullpen, uh, Alex Wood as well, because even if they are a much better team than they were in 2018, which I think they're going to be, you know, if they're not, uh, a breakout uh, a winner through the first you know, half of the season, more or less. Suddenly they're faced with going to the trade deadline, potentially being even hovering around 500, but being 10, 12 games back or being fourth place in their division. And then suddenly they've got six guys that they are going to have to try to find a way to trade. Uh, they're making close to $65 million this year, all of whom are in their last year under contract none of whom really profile as potential qualifying offer guys, except maybe Yasiel Puig and maybe Scooter Jeanette if he's still playing as well as he has the last two years. And so uh, going for that rental strategy while also being up against it against so many other better teams in the division just makes it, it – it's a really, really intriguing thing to me because I think they've got a lot of tradable assets while they're also trying to win and impress their fans for the first time in several years. Uh, it's a really, really weird spot for them to be in, and I agree with you. I think they've got the ability uh, to press and to make – um, a much better impression in the win column they have over the last four years. Uh, but maybe that's just not good enough because there are so many other better teams that are built to win 2019 specifically in their division. And it's going to be really, really tough because if they don't get off to that great start, they're going to have to change course very, very quickly. Who do you have is more likely to be a starting pitcher for the Reds in 2019? Uh, Kluber or Dallas Keuchel? That's a really, really good question. Uh, I think I want to say Dallas Keuchel purely because I think the Reds are very reluctant to give up Nick Senzel uh, for the same Mm -hmm. reason I mentioned. Scooter Scooter Jeanette's going into his last year under contract. Uh, they don't have a long-term second baseman really in-house right now. Um, they've got mm-hmm. Eugenio Suarez kind of embedded at third base on a, uh, a great seven-year contract extension they signed him to prior to last year. Uh, but their second base options are pretty thin. You know, they, they let Dilson Herrera go because he was out of options, got claimed this past offseason. Uh, Alex Blandino is kind of a fringe starter, kind of utility infielder by trade anyway, and he's coming off a torn ACL uh, Shed Long is a good prospect, but is still yet to impress in Double A and might not be uh, available for another two years at that or at best. Um, you know, Sunzel pretty much is the natural transition there, and I think they're very reticent to get rid of him purely because of the fit, but also because of how good uh, he projects to be and how much money they spend on him as a number two overall draft pick. They've already got you know, roughly six million dollars they signed him for. They got a lot invested in him. 
be part of this team going forward. And I think they really want to hold on to him. And I'm not sure you can physically go get Corey Kluber uh, with so many other teams out there thirsty for starting pitching without giving up one of those top, top prospects. Uh, and I think the Reds are going to be a little reluctant to do that, which makes me think that Dallas Keuchel is probably a more likely fit for them long-term, although I'm still really interested to see if they actually pull the trigger and make that deal happen. Yeah, I don't buy the Kluber stuff. It just feels like I think the Indians are going to keep Kluber and those guys. I think that just it would just send such a bad message to that fan base to sell on Kluber when they're still in their ale con- pseudo ale contention window. Like that's just a bad look. Like Carlos Santana is one thing, Kluber is another one where it's just like he's maybe out like just he's the guy you think of outside of Andrew Miller, Jose Ramirez, and Francisco Lindor with this contention window. Like yeah, he is Cleveland. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. you. Know, when 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 they had the financial implications and the payroll stuff before they managed to kind of see they went in Carrasco and start making some of those moves to to get their payroll down a little bit more, trading Young Guns as well. Uh, I thought it was something that was a little bit more realistic because I think they realized they could get a very very good player for him. Um, but mm-hmm. at this point, I think they've done enough. Uh, to kind of get that payroll down a bit. Uh, and they haven't been overwhelmed by an offer so far. I don't think they've got to trade him now. Um, and I do think there are going to be some outfield options that are free agents that just kind of, uh, their market's not going to thoroughly develop and they're going to be able to get... Like Nick Markakis, Adam like Jones. Adam guys Jones, like that. Yeah, yeah, guys like that that I think will be good fits. Uh, and I think they're also kind of waiting on that market to see how healthy Bradley Zimmer is going to end up being as well. Uh, he's obviously a very good defensive center fielder. His bat should be better than what it has been so far. Uh, but I think they're kind of waiting to see how much more he can improve as they head towards spring training. Because they probably know there's going to be some decent free agent outfielders still left on that market that are almost kind of overlooked that they can probably go out and pick up. Uh, or even, you know, we mentioned that second baseball market. If they want to put uh, Jason Kipnis out in the outfield again like they have, they might be able to pick up, a, you know, I don't know, Asdrubal Cabrera late in the offseason as well and kind of make that happen for a much, much less impact of the roster than trading Corey Kluber because they feel like they have to. Yeah. Kipnis, did you know he's still penciled in at the two spot if the season started today? Jason Kipnis is one of the more the bigger enigmas uh, in baseball because I feel like he doesn't look like he's hurt. He doesn't look like he's aged that badly. Uh, but his he's just not good. He's just falling off a cliff. I know. It's so weird to me because he was such a good player for so long. Um, but he does. They just left Michael Brantley go, who's really good. And Kipnis is going to be at the top of this order. With it, I mean, obviously it helps having guys like Ramirez and Lindor, but man... It's it's so weird to see teams that have had such great success over the last few years make moves like this almost purely for, for financial decisions. Right. Um, you know, look at it for the same reason that the Reds have Yasiel Puig and Matt Kemp and Alex Wood uh, for two decent but not great prospects in Cheater Downs and Josiah Gray mm-hmm. purely because the Dodgers just wanted to shed money. That was the only reason why they got rid of those guys. And obviously they've got they've got great depth in Alex Verdugo and Cody Bellinger being able to play outfield and everything else going forward. Uh, but they basically just gave the Reds those players because they weren't going to sign them long-term, and they had a number they were trying to get under. And it's so weird to see yeah. that be a, a much more prevalent thing in baseball now than it was even three, four, five years ago. Well, it's great. Everybody loves it. Um, baseball's uh, doing better than ever revenue-wise, and teams are not spending. Um, it's great. Um, it's great to be a veteran <laughs> yeah. in today's baseball climate. It's oh. it's a very good thing. You know that when you – I can't believe Kyler Murray wouldn't want to go down this avenue. Uh, I know, right? Ever <laughs> foreseen. Yeah. Who would ever want to do that? Um, 
I just feel like it's going to be Keigel. I'm with you. I think he's going to get like the four. I, I don't think he's going to get the fifth year that he's dying to get. I don't think any team's going to do it. The best case scenario is like what, like a four year with the team option on the fifth or something like that. But um, I think the Reds just are probably feels like a, he, I think the Reds are he secretly feels like hoping a bad they can Reds get him for like that. I feel like they can, the Reds are trying to secretly get him on that Jake Arietta contract where they can get him for three yeah. years, get him for 75 oh, million, man. not guarantee, guarantee more than that. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's interesting with, with Scott Boris being in charge of Keigel and Bryce Harper, uh, you almost feel like he's in no hurry to, to tell Dallas Keigel to sign anywhere because he's trying to figure out mm-hmm. how many teams, quote unquote, have that $350 million to sign Bryce Harper. And whoever doesn't get him, that's who he's going to start calling about uh, Dallas Keigel and be like, hey, I know you've got the money to spend because you've been trying to spend it on one of my other clients pony up and i think that's kind of what's holding the entire market up right now and like you i'm as anxious as possibly could be to find out where all these players are going to go because there's so many good ones left out there you know beyond just the top end of the market there's a lot of good mid-tier players uh that that are out there just waiting to be signed that are kind of just kind of holding their breath uh hoping that something shakes and breaks soon so they know where they're going because spring trading starts in what a month yeah we're almost there yeah um yeah, I don't know. I just feel like 2021, me seeing on the bottom of the ticker that Dallas Keuchel is 9-17 and 17 with a 4.4 ERA for the Cincinnati Reds, <laughs> who are just slogging their way in August. Like, that just seems right to me. That, that seems like a thing that's going to happen. It does. It certainly does. And I'm it's, sorry. It, 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 no, I, I don't blend you with it. I've been, I've been writing about the Reds pretty much since 2011, and luckily enough, I got in when there were still a few good seasons to write about, but I think the fact remains that, mm. you know, uh, the Reds have swung and missed on a lot of first round draft picks between yeah. uh, their great. I mean, for a while they had a phenomenal run of drafting. I mean, they got guys like uh, uh, Drew Stubbs, Devin Mazzarocco, Zach Kozar, Homer Bailey, Jay Bruce, Joey Votto. I love Drew Stubbs. I was a big Drew Stubbs guy. I love oh. like little tall lanky dudes who have ridiculous power for their size. Like it, it didn't, it, he never made sense to me. Until scouting reports realize that they can't hit curveballs, they're the, kind of the best players to watch in all of baseball. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think the Reds have drafted much, much better over the last three or four years. It, it helps when you're picking number two overall, as opposed to picking you know, 27th or 24th or whatever it was. Uh, but they had about a six-year window where they really didn't draft well. And I think the one thing that's key for the Reds right now, and for a lot of teams in the middle or small into the market, you got to draft your players. You got to develop them well, and you got to hold on to them, uh, despite the fact and, uh, that, that you could trade them and go make big splashes for veteran players. And I think the front office for the Reds has realized that they've been patient with it, and that's why they've got guys like uh, Taylor Trammell and Nick Senzel, who are two top twenty overall prospects. Uh, the Reds in twenty nineteen, their strategy seems to be they've gone out and picked and plucked guys that are just one year players to make them better right now, but they still don't seem like they're willing to leverage the future to go make a big splash in a trade, which is why I don't think Kluber's going to be an option because they want to keep Senzel, they want to keep Taylor Trammell, uh, and I think they still know that's the way back into total contention. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, they spent a little bit of money right now to make it interesting in twenty nineteen, but they're going to have to do it again this time next year too to continue to kind of improve down the road. Uh, and I'm, I, I I can't wait to see what the heck they do because uh, I agree with you. If they, if they only go out and sign Dallas Keuchel and think that's going to be the long term answer, uh, three years from now, I think you'll see him with a bad record and the Reds with a bad record too. I just wouldn't rule out Taylor Trammell to the Cubs for uh, Kyle Schwarber and you Darvish. I think you need to keep that in the back of your mind. You never know. 
you know, Kyle Schwarber, much like uh, Scooter Jeanette, also a Cincinnati guy. And uh, there, there are a lot of Reds fans that have been pining for Kyle Schwarber for a long, long time. I was um, joking. Don't put this into the world. <laughs> I don't want this to actually happen. Oh, my God. You know, you Darvish. No. You, the thing is, you Darvish last year, Dallas Keuchel this year, uh, you look at next winner's free agent class. And, you know, I mentioned that the Reds might have upwards of 65 million bucks coming off the payroll uh, with their one-year rental players. The, the pitching class for next year is probably as good as it's ever been. I mean, you got Garrett Cole, Chris Sale, um, Justin Verlander, uh, who else am I missing? Maybe Sonny Gray, uh, if he bounces back and pitches like he did before last season. Um, there's a lot of Madison Bumgarner, too. There, there, there's just an incredible depth of good established pitchers next year that might be available. Maybe the Reds have a lot better interest in them, and that's why they're kind of biding their time and getting short-term guys now. Because maybe they think that next year or this time next year is really the chance where they start pushing all their stuff in and going all in. And uh, uh, I'm interested to see because we've only got a, like I said a month left between now and pitchers and catchers report. If they don't sign Dallas Keuchel, maybe that means that they're channeling a lot more of their financial resources to this time next year to go get some of those guys to help build towards the future. Or they're just uh, trying to trade for JT Romuto, but they can't get in touch with Derek Jeter. <laughs> I don't know what uh, what the plan is. <laughs> Judas cell phone got lost in the uh, the home run statue when they moved it out of the building. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> he's still busy. He just turned his phone off after he got so many angry uh, Marlins fans uh, tweets about um, the new uniforms. And <laughs> yeah, the whole big announcement about all of that and that just being uh, what they came up with after th- all the hype. He uh, traded he traded his cell phone to uh, to the Brewers along with Christian Yelich. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, do you buy it? I could see Real Muto on the uh, on the Reds. It's not a crazy thing. It's not, you know. And I, of all the teams that have been connected with them, uh, I think the Reds are definitely hesitant to give up those top prospects, like I mentioned. But if yeah. the if the Marlins are looking to get a good catcher back in return as part of that return, uh, Tucker Barnard on his contract is pretty much. The, I mean, if they're looking for a combination of existing catcher and prospects plus. Uh, I think Tucker mm-hmm. Barnhart's the best fill-in at catcher that they could possibly get for Real Nudo uh, among right. the teams that were initially connected with him. I mean, Barnhart's contract, he's due, what, like $16 million over the next three years. Uh, Gold Glover in 2017. Which is I music was, to Derek Jeter's ears. It is. What does it he def- care? I mean, hey, that's more money in his pocket, right? And exactly. that's what we all want as baseball fans. Those owners <laughs> making that money back on <laughs> stripping the team to nothing and getting the Yankees to pay a little bit more of that salary so the for John Carlos Stanton and everything else. That's what fans really love, when he can sweeten the pot like that where uh, the other team uh, pays more of the salary than the, the, the old team. It's, exactly. it's great stuff. I love it. Sports <laughs> are healthy and great, and things are fine. $10.3 billion in revenue, and it's also the, the, the smallest amount of revenue that players have ever had in uh, modern baseball history. So, no, I, I agree with you. It's one of those things where uh, I think teams have realized that they've kind of got the upper hand in terms of how salaries are put together. And, you know, the younger players are better now than they ever have been. The pre free agent players are better than they ever have been. And nobody really wants to pay 32, 33, 34-year-old players uh, the way that they have in times past. And uh, I, I do believe it's heading towards a little bit of an impasse, uh, how quickly they can resolve it, whether or not it results in a strike or just simply renegotiate CDA. I don't know, but uh, I agree with you. It's one of those things when you look up and teams crying foul and saying that they don't have enough money and just waiting out the free agent market the way they have. Uh, it doesn't do anything to endear themselves to fans. That's for, that's for damn sure. Oh man. Um, 
just brutal. I was hoping we would go a little bit more positive with this stuff, but <laughs> well, it's this about is how we can. Reds. It's hard to be super positive for twenty minutes, right? Well, I mean, you have David Bell as the new manager. His grandfather played for yeah. the Reds. It's a nice little heartwarming story, kind of. Yeah, you know, he right? was a manager uh, for AAA for the Reds for a couple of years as well, and was actually mm-hmm. one of the, the the candidates for the job when Dusty Baker got hired, um, you know, ten, eleven years ago, and ended up not. Yeah, uh, getting much consideration because he obviously didn't have managerial experience then, but has gone on to have a phenomenally successful managerial career. I've uh, got front office experience, and that that is one aspect about this Reds offseason that I'm really excited about is that they hired a guy who was getting legitimate consideration to be the, the general manager of the San, uh, San Francisco Giants, and for a team that has had as much success as they have as the Giants have, uh, to be considering a guy like that for a job upstairs, much less in the dugout. And for the Reds to get him in the dugout, I think is really kind of a coup. And um, you know, it's a it's a bold strategy to go from uh, Brian Price, who had no managerial experience and flamed out miserably despite the front offices giving him nothing to work with, uh, going to yeah. a second consecutive rookie manager who has no managerial experience. Um, it's bold. You know, there were a lot of people that wanted a guy like Joe Girardi who had experience and. Uh, a resume that was through the roof and whatever. Uh, the Reds were patient enough to not do that. And how that pans out is another uh, a big question mark uh, going forward in the next couple of years. But if anybody I think has uh, got the talent and, and wherewithal to pull it off, uh, I think it's David Bell. And I really, really do like the decision to hire him. Well, I've always said that if there was ever going to be a new Sparky Anderson, it was David Bell. <laughs> no one else... <laughs> No one else fits the mold quite like uh, David Bell. I've always said Young Sparky is uh, what I believe they called him growing up. (laughs) I'll take it. I I would gladly, gladly accept that. No doubt. It's my favorite baseball name of all time. It's. I remember as a kid seeing that name come up when I'm just going through sports encyclopedias. I'm like Sparky Anderson. Is this a real thing? Is this is this a thing? He's the all-time wins leader in Reds history and everything else. And you're like, what the hell? This is incredible. And then you Uh, realize that Jack McKeon was a really good Reds manager for a little bit and all this other stuff. And you're like, oh, ah, a lot of cool stuff here. Reds had some cool stuff. Sparky Anderson might be behind Bubbles Hargrave and High Pockets Kelly. It might be Sparky Anderson. But uh, that's a pretty uh, Hall of Fame elite of all-time names in baseball history. That's for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we can read you on redreporter.com. Um, is there anything that's coming out this week that uh, we should check out uh, from you? So we're working on our community prospect rankings right now, which for the first time, uh, well, maybe last year was probably the first real time, but uh, the Reds actually have a really, really good, really, really deep farm system right now um, since they haven't gone out into the recording delivery yet. Uh, but we're doing our community prospect rankings every single day, uh, probably now for the next three weeks. We rank our top 25 overall prospects. Uh, that's out every single morning. We're doing updates to uh, uh, our proprietary top uh, players in, in Cincinnati Reds history, and we'll have updates on all the current players as well uh, going through that. And then uh, we're just kind of holding our breath, waiting for those next big Reds moves, uh, which we, we do expect to happen between now and spring training, at least one or two more. Um, but, yeah, we, we've got a lot of that going on, and we'll have Red reports on all of the, uh, uh, the existing players coming forward too. And um, it's our busy season. It's, it's the funnest season uh, uh, for me personally because I love the offseason and transactions and all the above. Uh, and I'm excited to see that the Reds are actually on the, uh, the buying side of things going forward. And you don't have to think about uh, how much money Hummer Bailey is making this season. I- I don't have to ever write another Homer Bailey article ever again, <laughs> which is kind mm-hmm. of intriguing to me too. Cause God, for as promising as he was uh, for so long, the last three years have just been brutal trying to follow him. Yeah. 
Oh, well. And Billy Hamilton, another guy who you were just waiting on, but uh, it just never happened. The offense never came together. But now he's uh, he's off to bigger and better things in Kansas City where the rebuild looks short and things are going to be great there really soon. Oh, no, he's in. You know, you don't, you don't have to look too much further for why the Reds have not been successful over the last few years uh, to, you know, you list Homer Bailey, you list Billy Hamilton, you list Devin Mesoraco. Uh They've had a lot of guys they put a lot of faith in that just didn't quite pan out. And uh, they're at least to the point where they've moved on from those. And that's not to say that the, the next crop of players is going to pan out better than they did, uh, but at least they don't have guys that haven't panned out that are currently on the roster. And at least that gives Reds fans a little bit more hope than they've had in the last few years. Progress. That's all we're looking for in Cincinnati these days. Um, and Hugh Jackson, not the coach of the Bengals. So uh, <laughs> things are looking up in Cincinnati. Who day and everything else. Um, Wick, I appreciate it. And uh, we will have to talk in soon, sir. Yeah, absolutely. I hope the Reds continue to make some uh, newsworthy moves. There you go. That's all you can hope for. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I am now joined by someone who has been suffering for the last couple of years of watching one of the greatest hockey players of my generation um, get misused, missed, uh, put on a team that's just, it's not great um, in Edmonton, but it's a guy who watches a lot of Connor McDavid. It's Rob Soria of the Hockey Writer. Rob, good evening. How are you? Well probably a little better than uh you might think i'm doing after hearing that intro <laughs> i'm sorry man like i just i was going back through the records and just the numbers since kevin Lowe left and it's just it's not good and i feel like i've seen this story before in so many different sports where it's like team stumbles into um just transcendent talent because the current gm who we'll talk about in a second drafted him as a no-brainer Connor mcdavid was one of those rare no-brainers like Sidney crosby and other guys like that and the the problem is uh, the GM in the front office and ownership group has no idea actually how to build that team around the superstar and make sure that they become the Maple Leafs or the um, Tampa Bay Lightning or Nashville Predators or Winnipeg Jets or whoever. Um, they're, it, it's, it's gone the other way. This is a 500 team. They have a superstar in Conor McDavid, and uh, that's about it. Um, I'm, I just feel like it's just this is more frustrating than just being bad because they can't even like get bad enough where they can surround McDavid with more superstars and try to help him get out of this purgatory in the NHL. Am I overstating the state of Edmonton Oilers hockey right now? Um. A little bit, but not a lot, to be quite honest with you, uh, because there are some other pieces still um, in tow that are really good players. The problem is, as you mentioned, uh, the way the team was constructed, um, they they panicked at the wrong time, and now it's cost them, because they did have a lot of pieces in place uh, for suffering through their rebuild that they started, shall we say, back in 2010. Um, and they had pieces in place. The problem is, the first year all those guys are gone that's the problem right that's when they panicked that first year was the issue they uh they had an off year and that off year to be honest with you was very much dealt with injuries and again the team the roster still wasn't set and then they panicked made a couple of moves and yeah they had a really good year in 16 17 but now you're starting to see the issue is as you mentioned 
even if you got a couple of three good players, and hockey's even more so than most sports, you can't win with just a couple of guys. Uh, yeah. You need to have depth. You can win with a couple of superstars, but you need depth elsewhere in the roster. And, and uh, unfortunately, the current general manager um, had some knee-jerk reactions a couple of years ago, and now it's costing them. Do you think it was an ownership thing? Because we see that a lot too, where like ownership realizes they have the superstar and they they just they want to expedite the process of building a winner, and they were just like, no, we need to we need to win now. We need to invest a lot of money because there is so much salary already invested in this team over the next ten years. Basically, it's like twenty twenty five feels like ten years from now, but it's not. But just looking at the amount of money that is already in this team that's just playing 500 hockey it's just it's staggering and you just i don't know it kind of reminds me of the red wings in a way the blackhawks other teams like that where there's just so much money invested in a team that's just not going to compete for the cup because they just like you said they don't have the depth and everything else so um i i just is it does it all fall on the gm because they already have done the the cliche thing of firing the coach like so he's gone and the GM is now, there's a bunch of questions whether or not uh, he's going to stick around through the remainder of the season. But also, you don't want him making moves at the deadline if he's not your guy going forward because ultimately you want someone new in there before um, he starts making other franchise-altering decisions. Um, what do you make of the current coach and GM uh, dynamic in Edmonton? Well, back to the original point that you made with regards to ownership, uh, it's a little different here because Daryl Gates, who runs the team here, he you know, grew up here and it was a really big Oilers fan through the dynasty years. He's buddies with all the, those guys. So I think part of the play, as you mentioned earlier, to get better quick, I think part of the issue was, yeah, you saw you got this transcend, transcending player that you've got in your lineup now. And you're looking at an organization that went years without making the playoffs. So, yeah, I think they kind of jumped the gun a little bit. Um, and now it's, like we mentioned, it, it's put them in this situation. And as far as the coach and GM goes, well, from a coaching standpoint, honestly, I'm pretty sure Hitchcock is, Ken Hitchcock is probably just a fill-in for the remainder of the year. Uh, he's His track record speaks for itself. He's been a very successful coach in the NHL, has been for ages. He's going to end up in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's also a guy who wears out his welcome in short periods of time in spots, especially these days as athletes in every sport are different. Um, and that hard love act wears thin. Um, and it brings us to Peter Shirelli. And as far as Shirelli goes, um, he didn't inherit, some of what he inherited wasn't great from a standpoint of what the Oilers had brewing in the farm system. Um, so I, I do give him that, and he has improved that, and you'll see a little bit of that hopefully coming forward. But what he did inherit um, was elite young talent. And unfortunately, outside of a couple of guys, he's literally gave it away and got pennies on the dollar. So because of that, it's left this team where it is. He's made some poor decisions from a free agent standpoint. Um, he's incapable of winning a trade that involves real, genuine, high-end NHL talent. Um, so, yeah, in my opinion, he should have been gone last year. Um, but I, there's no way on God's green earth I can see him lasting to next season. My guess is he will last the season because, uh, honestly, more often than not, swapping out the GM midseason doesn't accomplish much. But as you hinted at earlier, the one caveat is that 
do you really want this guy dealing with anything at the deadline when he knows his job's at the line, uh, on the line, right? So it's yeah, a tough spot the here, right? just went through something similar, right? Like that's yep. just kind of what they did uh, just a it, month ago, basically. It, it's a little different, though, and that's the thing. Like there, there are a lot of hockey-crazed markets all over the U.S., but when you're in Canada where the hockey-crazed market like Edmonton is, it's, it's different. The pressure these guys feel from – the fan base and everyone else in this city, it's, it's immense, you know, and I know for a lot of people who live in the U S they really, it's kind of like a, a lot of people compare it. I know U S guys who live out here now that grew up in, in the States. And they said, it's almost like a cross between you take whatever big national sports team, whatever league beat the NFL, major league baseball, basketball, whatever the case may be and swap it in halfway with, you know, an area where it's a huge college team, again, football or basketball, let's say, especially football. And that's what this is 24 um, seven. The Oilers are what the, they they breathe. Everyone in this city breathes Oilers 24 seven, 365 days a year. So it's, it's a little much. And when they're in the situation that they are, the heat they're feeling is real uh, from the fan base. So uh, lucky for them, the media isn't too, too bad on them out here. So, uh, there's far worse medias in the NHL places like Vancouver, Montreal come to mind that are really, really hard on players. Hmm. So do you think they end up doing a fire sale at the deadline? Do you think if he is in power, how do you, if you're forecasting how things go for the Oilers over the next couple of weeks, how do you, uh, how do you see things playing out? If they're smart, they'll dump some pieces. Um, the thing is you can only dump so many people. You can't, you can't move anything of, of value, right? Uh, there's rumors starting yesterday that ah, they're starving for a forward and they're thinking of trading their first round pick. If these guys trade their first round pick, they're insane. Um, trading because, their first round pick? Oh yeah, because what? what whatever they whatever the only way you can trade that first round pick is if you get a guy who's you know a young stud in like 2021. 20, but that isn't going to happen. That deal doesn't happen at the deadline, regardless. Right. So now the Oilers, to be honest, don't have a lot of tradable assets that people would want uh, yeah. but they do have some pieces that they could move at the deadline and in my opinion they can move a lot of those pieces and it doesn't really affect their roster much right now they should be able to make do uh, the bottom half of the western conference is terrible so because of it even if they make trades if they get decent goaltending mcdavid and dry can continue to carry the team they get oscar clefbaum back from injury they can still sneak into the playoffs. They're not going anywhere, um, but they could do that trades or no trades. So if you can get, as you had mentioned, contracts off the books, then do it because there's certain things like, you know, Lucic's contract, guys like that. You can't trade them. They're, they're, they're untradeable. Uh, you, could you buy them out? Sure. But then you just have dead cap space, which again, you can't move forward with six to 8 million of dead cap space year upon year. So they're in a tough spot. They really are. Um, that said, it's fixable if you get the right GM in here because the talented guys they do have in here, um, they're, they're capable enough and talented enough to carry this team, but they have to make some tough decisions. They have to make NHL trades where you trade real players and get real players in return, and you can't keep losing those trades. And Unfortunately for Peter Shirelli, when he decided to trade Taylor Hall from there on, it snowballed on him all those deals he lost. And, um, yeah, so then, <laughs> then you are where you are. It 
it's 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 a tough would spot. Would you guess sure. if they fire Shirelli that they go like the Kyle Dumas route and they go super young, analytical, heavy, and they kind of do because ultimately that's kind of what you want is like an Austin Matthews type situation. Um, even though Toronto now has too many good players, where like they they have some weird stuff where they almost just like miss Nylander with the weird contract stuff, and they have two restrictive free agents, and because um, I believe Matthews and um, oh, what's his name, I'm forgetting uh, who. Yes, they're both coming up, and they're going to have to pay yep. them both at the same time. That's going to be tough. And you look at that, and you're like, okay, um, do we go after someone like that who can handle this and put a bunch of talent around our one superstar in Connor McDavid, or do you go with a more traditional GM, kind of like what um, I think the Islanders tried to do when they um, were trying to keep Tavares, right? Like they went with the proven commodity in lieu, and yeah. um, they're a good team this year. But it's fine, but they didn't get Tavares. And whatever, it's a risk. But I just don't know which way they go: the established route or the young, interesting, intriguing guy that you're like, oh, they're gonna he's gonna tear down, move a lot of these contracts, and then hope that he can surround Connor McDavid with the right amount of talent so that the Oilers can contend um, during his prime over the next uh, three to five years, right? Yeah, it's tough to say because the thing is, they're not gonna tear it down because you can't tear this down. Like they just can't. They can't go through. This is the Los Angeles Angels situation with Mike Trout. It's it's, honestly, man, it's turned into that. (laughs) It really has. And instead of us talking about Pujols, you're talking about Lucic. And and it's different, Mm -hmm. of course, with baseball because, yeah, you could make things go away if you have great starting pitching or nowadays an amazing bullpen and you can kind of go and move pieces. But with hockey, it's really difficult. But McDavid is as good as he is as people think he is and he really is for people who don't get to see him all the time like uh if you see him on a nightly basis it's a whole like it's a whole different it's a whole different level i was lucky enough i grew up in when i was a kid i got to see the oilers heyday so i got to see gretzky through all of it and it's different it's a different game he's a different player but he's so dominant if they even do a half decent job of surrounding him with players they can fix this thing without build, without ripping it ripping it right down to, you know, the studs. Um, As far as the GM goes, I agree with you. They should go that route. But because this is going to be not a full-out rebuild, I don't know if they will. Uh, Dubas is a really good GM. Uh, It's funny because I watch the Leafs now, and the Leafs aren't really much different than the Oilers. Like, they're really not. The difference is they kept their players, and the Oilers didn't. And because of it, um, you can see the difference of losing two or three players, uh, totally changes what a team can be. And also now... So there's Kevin one. Lowe coming back. Is that what we're getting at here? <laughs> well, you, you know what? If Shirelli were to get canned in season, I guarantee you someone in-house would take over, uh, be it Lowe, be it McTavish, be it whoever, um, unless they end up keeping, and I know people will say what they say, because uh, Shirelli's assistant GM is actually Keith Gretzky. <laughs> so people will say that, but, but Keith Gretzky was... <laughs> I know, it's funny, but to be fair, Gretz, uh, Keith Gretzky was with Shirelli in Boston, and he's actually seemed to do a pretty good job as a, an assistant GM, but again, to me, there's a difference between the role of an assistant GM and a GM in the NHL. Assistant GM, you know, helps, does certain things, really helps on the scouting side of it and developing the younger players and who you end up drafting, and that's where this regime has actually done a pretty decent job. They may have pieces coming. Um, but yeah, I, and the thing is too, to be honest with you, the Oilers are in a spot where a lot of the good young GMs have found homes in the last two or three years in the NHL. 
Um, so there's not many of those guys brewing under the surface. There's probably still one or two out there. Um, but if I were to bet money on it, I'd almost to- I'd almost guarantee they go not old, old school, but they'll probably go old school to a degree. Which is weird because their owner's young. He's 57. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not like they have an old, stog- like, stoggy owner. He's, like, the same age as Lowe, I want to say. Like, somewhere around that. Like, he's someone who, like, you you would think that would embrace that kind of approach. You know, as painful as it would be to kind of waste a couple seasons with Connor McDavid on your hands, I just don't see another avenue. I don't see a retooling situation um, putting them over the top of McDavid. So, it, it's oh. a tough thing, but they did this to themselves. Edmonton did did this to themselves. They're in a very difficult spot, but like I said, you could move it along where in a couple of years' time, they could probably still be really good, but in the next couple of years, be much better than they are. Like, there's no reason for them to be struggling to the extent that they did, or that they are, but the reason they are is anyone who has two eyes and can see, can see what's going on. You know, I've been saying it for two seasons, um, and many of the articles I've written over at the Hockey Writers and via um, via Twitter and all sorts of different platforms that I might be on, um, people thought I was crazy when the Oilers went on their run uh, in 16-17 and got into the playoffs, looked really good, should have beat Anaheim but lost. But you could see, even then, um, where everyone here was so thrilled that they made the playoffs, it had been so long. Like they either they had never lived through this at all, or it had been so long for other fans that they forgot what it was like. But when you looked at that lineup, you had to realize that it was the only way it could continue is if the secondary pieces continue to click on all levels, which never happens with those players. Mm-hmm. Everyone stays healthy, which never happens, and the goaltender in Cam Talbot, who's a at the time, a pretty good goaltender, but had a career year. Like, he ended up uh, just outside of the voting for the Vezina. He ended up fourth. He's not a top-five goaltender in the NHL. Um, this year, mm-hmm. when the Oilers have had success, when they went on extended winning runs, there hasn't been many, but there's been a couple. It's been because Talbot's been really good, or Miko Koskinen, who's the backup they brought in this year, has been stellar. You add that to McDavid doing what McDavid does, they're going to win games. But to do that over 82 games... Plus playoffs, it's just not year in, year out. It's just not practical. I think you just described the Ducks without a superstar. Yeah. I hear you. a better goalie. Yeah. I mean, the Ducks haven't won since, what, November, basically? Like, <laughs> they've just, uh, it's, it's killing me what's yeah. going on in uh, Anaheim. But, uh, yeah. but to be it's, fair, it's not the, great. Du- the only reason the, Ux, the Ducks were even in anything the first month and a half of the season was because of John Gibson. Right. He won games by himself. Like, week in, week in, week out, week in, week out. But again, as good a goalie as that guy is, and in my opinion, he is a top-five goalie in the league, if not higher, at some point, pucks go in. Like it's right. Just, I mean, especially when your team is scoring. I think I, I want to. They're not dead last in point score, but I think they're second to last. Yeah. I think last time I checked, it's it's a putrid offense. Yeah. And uh, I believe the offseason thing was like they're not going to be slow moving. They're going to be faster. They're going to be this new brand identity and all this kind of stuff. And it uh, has not unfolded that way on yeah. the ice. Yeah, and you've seen the same thing with LA, right? You've hear you've heard people yeah. with the Kings say the same. But at thing least they bottomed out. Yeah. Like they're true. just bad, and they just know they're going to be bad for a while. Well, and that's the problem with a team like L.A., right? Whereas at least, see, you can say the Oilers have some issues with the cap, which they do, but the guys making the majority of money on their team, 
outside of a couple of guys, are their best players. When you look at a team like L.A., you got a couple of guys, yeah, that are still in their prime. But even a guy like Kopitar, who's still a very good player, he's making obscene money that's going to start killing them in a couple of years. Um, but again, you know, uh, and I know you mentioned Chicago earlier, but at least Chicago, you can I feel take. like they're in a worse situation. Because, yeah, I mean, you're Ch- going to take Crawford, right? Potentially, yeah, I agree. he doesn't have any more concussions, but, like... I agree, but Chicago, you can take, because they won three mm. cups. And L.A., yeah, you can I mean, take the Kings to won too, well. though. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. In L.A., you can, you can as well. But the problem I find with L.A. is some of the decisions they've made recently make no sense. Mm. Where Chicago, they made a lot of their decisions before. Their one big mistake, which anyone, again, who knows anything about anything was their signing of Seabrook to the deal that they did when they did. But again, that's, you know, you got to take it, that part of the equation out that there are winners before. We saw this with the Islanders in the 80s, different time, different money, different era. But the Islanders kept everyone way too long and then were god-awful forever. And that was because they didn't trade any of those guys. Before yeah. it was too late, and they just wrote it out, and then yeah. they had nothing left in the cupboard, and it was just it was bad because you you got to kind of set back a little bit so you can get some new young intriguing talent in the pipeline and kind of make it sustainable. But that's uh that's one of the most difficult things in sports, I think, is balancing out winning now while also not screwing yourself over for ten years of just awful rebuilding. Because I mean, the Phillies did that with Ruinamero, where they went yeah. all in, they traded all their prospect capital, and they won a World Series, and it was great. But then they just uh, have gone through a decade of just hell in the rebuilding. Yeah. And it's it's a lot more difficult when you're in a big market like that and all that. It's it's tough. It turns out running a sports team, actually difficult. Um, yeah. <laughs> but maybe Colby Cave is the answer in Edmonton. We haven't talked about him. The former Boston Bruin legend, uh, Colby Cave. Uh, are we sure he's not the answer to Connor McDavid's uh, sidekick woes? Uh, my answer would be to that... Uh... Probably not, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still too early to say, but my answer would be no, without question. Okay. So, but so we'll what see. is the end of season expectations for you then for this team? Do they sneak into the playoffs? Do they still have around 500 and make it? Do they make it, or do they finish at around 500 and just miss, or do they bottom out by firing their GM and um, just completely unloading and changing direction? Like, how do you see it going? I don't foresee them making the playoffs. I really don't, but. If they made it, would I be surprised? No, I wouldn't, because he's that good. McDavid is that good. He can take this team and drag and will them to, you know, points here and there to get. And as I mentioned earlier, the conference is terrible. So because the conference isn't very good at the bottom, where the Oilers have kind of shot themselves in the foot to a degree, um, is their recent struggles have parlayed with Vegas getting hot, San Jose finding their game, and Calgary turning it up a notch. So originally, a lot of people thought, oh, they might have a chance to sneak in third in the Pacific. But right now, the top three teams in the Pacific, you could argue, at least from a regular season standpoint, are on the same level as Nashville and Winnipeg because they are from a point standpoint. So they're not going to win that. They're not going to be able to grab that third spot in their division. So then it comes down to one of the last wild cards. And those other teams just aren't very good. Minnesota's flawed. Colorado's flawed. Uh, St. Louis, I think, is going to get in the mix, and they've been god-awful all year, um, so they'll get back in it. Um, there's teams down there in Anaheim, as we mentioned earlier. I, again, they're going to win the odd game. Cooked. There's just well, no way to solve that offense issue. This sure, season. but they're again... Just, there's nothing you can do. But again, and I don't disagree, but again, Gibson's going to get hot again. And when he does, he's going to 
win them points on his own. So because well, he's Batman capable of doing If this team makes the playoffs, he has to just say, no, 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 no. no. We're not putting this on television. This is not happening. You're not yeah. winning a playoff game one to nothing. <laughs> this is, We're not allowing it. <laughs> that, that's what you're looking at, though, from, a, from an Anaheim standpoint, for sure. But, yeah, so do I think the Oilers make the playoffs? Probably not. Uh, could they sneak in? For sure. Uh, they're not going to bottom out. They'll be that just won't happen. This market will not allow for them to to bottom out. Um, they just won't. And th- this ownership group as well and management team they want to make the playoffs. Uh, if nothing else, just to say they made the playoffs, which is an asinine way of looking at things. Fans aren't dumb. Yep. This is a different era. Like they can see through that stuff. I don't know why owners talk themselves into that. We're like, see, we made the playoffs. Look, we're moving in the right direction. It's like fans are smart. They yeah. read. They know what's oh. going on. They know yeah. what you're doing. And the funny thing is, too, uh, this market very much so from uh, an online, uh, shall we say, blogosphere, that sort of thing. There's a lot of fans who know what they're talking about that follow this team or that are in this city. Um, but for me, I, out of all the sports, I think the ones you're really starting to see it actually happen more in transition is in baseball, right? Teams are now, it's getting to the point where it's too much in baseball, where teams are just like, yeah, no, we're good. We're going to suck, and three, uh, three quarters of the league, the league is, is going to suck. Oh, yeah. Because no one's paying, and then it just screws over the veterans because they're like, oh, would we pay a 22-year-old uh, $600,000 versus uh, Mike Moustakis, this 32-year-old veteran who's worked his whole life to get to this point to get a, a nice little payday at the end of his career? They're like, what if we just didn't do that? Do they yeah. have an option? So um, it turns out putting a lot of capital investors and all this kind of stuff in front offices um, kind of makes things difficult uh, for people yeah. wanting to get compensated the right way when they – um, are out of arbitration and are uh, ready to kind of cash in at the end of their careers. It's, uh, yeah. it's a really healthy system in Major League Baseball, I would say. It's great. Things are great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at least the National League should be challenging this year, I think. The American League is going to be uh, un- unwatchable. But at least at the National League, you're starting to see some teams um, that I think will be a few teams. It, it'll be interesting. But the difference, too, with, with baseball that – you look at a guy like Josh, Donald- Josh Donaldson. Yeah, the Braves may have overpaid him a little bit, but it's one year, so it's all it about years. Matter. That's what it is. Teams yeah. will overpay for a year. It's it's what and that I mean that's I think all sports with Dumas and every other young interesting GM that comes up. Like I think that's all they they care about. It's like they're okay with signing up for long term deals with young talent that are going to age gracefully, that kind of stuff. And you lock in your superstars, but you don't spend you, you don't lock yourself into Evan Turner type deals and like Philly did oh. years ago, or like you don't do what the Braves did uh, with Frank Wren, where you yep. uh, double down on the Uptons and all these other guys. And you're like, oh, this is not going to end well. And then you have to sell all those pieces and you have to go through this another painful rebuild. Like teams are just, I feel like everybody has a GM kind of like each other now. They're just yeah. just a lot of former finance guys all just getting in a room and seeing uh, how it, it's all complicated. I could rant about the Major League Baseball front office the issue um, all the time. But I would just encourage people to read John Taylor and Sports Illustrated, front of the pod, um, outlining the current state of baseball's uh, CBA and just everything going on there. But um, all right, man. Well, the Oilers, go watch Connor McDavid. I know uh, it's tough with if you're an Oilers fan because you want to see him win more games, but he is a special player and he's fun to watch and um, he's appointment viewing. So even if the Oilers keep doing Oiler things, at least you'll know you can watch a hockey game where this dude is just able to do things that uh, hockey players should not be able to do. Very true. And like you said, every night there's something 
where the kid will wow you. So if nothing else, you get that. And and hopefully, starting this summer, the Oilers will stop doing Oilers things and try and rectify this issue moving forward. Uh, so the, Like stealing well, Ken Holland away from Detroit. What could go wrong? <laughs> hey, man, the, the thing here from the moment he left, uh, decided to leave Tampa Bay, all people talk about here is, oh, they need to get Steve Eiserman. It's like Eiserman left oh. Tampa for a reason. And it wasn't to go, if he goes anywhere, it's going to be Detroit. That was a weird story, though. Remember? Like, that's still yeah. just... That was a weird thing. I really think with Eiserman, it was honestly just strictly family, right? His, but you just never see that in sports, like especially at the top when you're yeah. like you built this winner like this and everything else, and they're just this points for just juggernaut and just to walk away like that. It's just yeah. weird. Well, and especially because they hadn't won. Like they just they hadn't won. They had great seasons, right. but they never won a cup. With him running man, the they show, don't win he, it this year, man. Oh. Well, and you never know, and that's the thing with hockey, right? Hockey's very, it's funny, hockey, it's its no different. I guess baseball's like that too. Basketball's the one sport where it's not so much like that. But baseball, if a team gets hot or a pitcher gets hot or someone's slumping, you can go like that. NHL, same thing. If a goalie gets hot or a guy goes on a heater for a week, anyone can beat anyone. You know, like they, they really can. No team in the playoff will be terrible. And I'll tell you this, even if the Oilers were to sneak into the playoffs, would I expect them to do anything? No. But would I be shocked if they knock someone off in the first round? No, not at all. They get the best player on the planet. Who says he can't do enough to win four out of seven? Of course he could. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a goal or two difference here or there. If the guy's putting up two to three points a game over a seven-game series, well. And you have a who, hot goalie. Like yeah. it's more than doable, yeah. Yeah. So that's just how it is, right? And and both those sports are like that. So uh, be it basketball or sorry, not basketball, baseball or hockey. So that's the thing, right? You just you don't know, and that's why so many of them say you just need to get there, and it's true. You just need to get there, and yeah, chances of them making a run not good. But you know, <laughs> the problem All though, to said, be honest, you never man, know. if they were to if they were to win a round, that would make it worse. Because then people will be like, oh, see, it's good. They're headed in the right direction. Things are better than ever. <laughs> and then you're back to where you started a couple of years ago, where yes. they just add on all these more bad contracts, and yes. you're just going more salary cap hell. And it, oh, God. Um, I'm just giving a bunch of Oilers fans seizures right now. Um, Rob, <laughs> Nothing I they're not used you to, t- man. Nothing they're not used <laughs> to. <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, Rob, I really appreciate it. We can follow you on Twitter at oil underscore drop. We can read you at the hockey writers.com. Um, is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here real quick? No, I'm good, man. Just the site head over there as much as possible. Um, I took a bit of a hiatus over the holiday season. I'm just starting up again. Uh, and a couple of years back, I did write a book on uh, Connor McDavid hockey's next great one, which you can get through Amazon. Uh, that was in 20, well, April, 2017, I guess. So yeah, right around the corner. So are you going to send me over a promotional copy? You bet, buddy. No, the podcast? no problem. I can do that. Oh, for you. Perfect. All right. I'll read it. Rob, thank you so much. And uh, let's talk again soon, sir. You bet. Thanks again for having me. It was a pleasure. Take care. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second and leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can 
access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.